Welcome to this very special interview that I have today with Dr. Kelly Brogan. I'm Trudy Scott, food mood expert, certified nutritionist, author of the Anti-Anxiety Food Solution and host of the Anxiety Summit. And today I am bringing a great interview with a hero of mine, Dr. Kelly Brogan. She has just come out with a new book called A Mind of Your Own. You've probably seen some of the posts that I've been sharing, some of the blog posts and all the raves that I've been sharing about this wonderful book. And it's just a great opportunity to have her on the call and to have her actually speaking to you in person. So welcome, Dr. Bergen. Total pleasure to be here. Total pleasure. It's great to have you. And big, big congratulations with your book. It just released and it's doing so well and it's getting in the hands of so many people who need it. So it's just really wonderful. Awesome. Yes, that's that's my intention. So it's it's been amazing to watch. It's been wonderful to be part of it as well. So let me just read a little bit about you for the, for people who may not know about you. I think most people in my community do. I've interviewed you twice on the Anxiety Summit, and uh, my community just loves the message that you have to share. But for people who may not know, Dr. Kelly Brogan is a Manhattan-based holistic women's health psychiatrist and author of this new book that we're going to be talking about today. It's called A Mind of Your Own, and it reveals the truths about women's depression, how to holistically recover without a single prescription, and how to self-empower to reclaim your life. I really like the whole self-empowerment message. I think that's so beautiful. And then there is information here that's going to help men as well. So it's not necessarily only for women. This is true. true. (laughs) We want to make that clear because a lot of people say, why are you leaving me out? You know, I need help too. But it definitely applies across the board. But I know your focus is women's health. uh, So this is why you've made your focus of your book on women's health. But let me just continue with the the bio here. Uh, Dr. Uh, you're also the co-editor of a landmark textbook, Integrative Therapies for Depression, which came out a few months ago, and I have a copy of that, and it's absolutely fantastic. And uh, Dr. Brogan completed her psychiatric training and fellowship at NYU Medical Center after graduating from Cornell University Medical College. She has a BS from MIT in Systems Neuroscience. She's board certified in psychiatry, psychosomatic medicine, and integrative holistic medicine, and is specialized in root cause resolution approach to psychiatric syndromes and symptoms. Wow, fantastic. It's great to have you here. And I mentioned the fact that it's going to help men as well. And I wanted to also just say that it's obviously going to help if you've got anxiety as well. Although the focus is depression, we see so many overlaps with depression. So obviously a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about today and probably everything you cover in the book applies to anxiety as well, correct? Yes, and I would even broaden the lens a bit more uh, because I, you know, I see all manner of psychiatric uh, symptom profiles in my practice, from schizophrenia to OCD to panic attacks to bipolar disorder, and this is what I do. <laughs> you know, so it's while I don't think there's such a thing as obviously, and that's what we'll talk about, a one-size-fits-all approach to to any uh, any given presentation of of any sort of uh, chronic illness. 
I certainly think there is a, a place to start, and and the approach that's sort of in, you know outlined here is is really it's not rocket science. You know, it's really a classical um, holistic medicine approach, and I think it's a great place to start. Whether you're a teenager or an elderly gentleman, you know, it ends up being uh, probably a very helpful launching off point. Excellent. And something that you say, which I think is so profound, is that depression and all these other conditions you've just talked about, it's merely a symptom and it's a sign that something is off balance in the body and that you need to do something about it. And I think that's a really important point to make. I think it's, yeah, it's arguably the most important concept. If there's anything to, to take away from, you know, this conversation or from the book itself, it would be that because, you know, psychiatry, as you well know, is is really alone in the field of medicine in that it is um, the only specialty that, that relies on absolutely no objective diagnostic um, screening or technology, right? So when you see a psychiatrist or when you see a doctor, like a family practice doctor or an internist who prescribes you a psychiatric medication, they don't do any special testing to diagnose you. There's no blood test. There's no brain exam. There's no imaging. There's no EEG. There's no nothing. There's not a physical exam. Uh, and, and so it's really a subjective, impressionistic system and and what we use uh, what we're trained to use for diagnosis is called the diagnostic and statistical manual it's essentially you know a dictionary of terms and you sort of pluck one out <laughs> depending on what your impression is and and often you end up labeled with this uh, you know pathology for life and you can collect more and more labels that can be get more and more prescriptions of course uh, but but the truth is that we're working with entities that are in fact, not diseases. There's been a strong incentive on the part of the Guild of Psychiatry for about, you know, 50 or 60 years to, to medicalize um, the field, right? And so there's been a lot of effort to create these disease entities, right? We've been looking for the gene for depression, the gene for bipolar, and, and we've tried to match it up with, you know, sort of the one ill, one pill model of allopathic medicine. But, you know, depression is, is in, in my opinion, um, no different than a fever, right? It's, it's just an expression of imbalance, and you wouldn't look for the gene for a fever or expect there to be one single uh, <laughs> class of medication that would be effective for that, right? So it really re requires a reframing of, of how we're even talking about, you know, what psychiatry is attempting to address. Wonderful. So, so profound. Something that really hit home to me when I was reading the book is that you said before I stopped prescribing, I had never once cured a patient. Now people are cured every week in my practice. That is really, really, uh, certainly a brave and bold thing to say, but how amazing for you to see these kind of results. It, it continues to shock me, honestly, uh, you know, because I think it's uh, it, it's more than anything else a recognition of, of two very different mindsets, right? And, and one mindset, the one that I trained in and really, frankly, grew up in, uh, sees the body as inherently flawed and inherently dangerous, right? And, and so the, the goal of, of health is really just managing that body, keeping it in check, keeping it from annoying you, keeping it from slowing you down. 
Why? So that you can remain functional, so that you can get up and go to work every day, be productive, and, you know, do that until you die. You know, that's one model of, of quote-unquote, health in this country. And, you know, there's a very different model that actually seeks not just symptom remission or repression or suppression, but actually seeks a connection to an experience of vitality and everything that comes from that, you know, purpose-driven living, you know, spiritual expression, you know, sort of like a fullest beingness. And, and that only comes, in my opinion, from working with you know, with what symptoms are trying to tell you about your body. You know, the body, in my opinion, doesn't make mistakes. And that fundamentally is is such a departure philosophically from the allopathic model that feels like you're you're just bad luck and mistakes that you were born with all day, every day, right? So if we accept that the body doesn't make mistakes and we have to take something from every single illness and symptom and we have to work with it and and try to understand what it's what it's attempting to express about imbalance then you have an opportunity to 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 really come into alignment with um with your experience you know on this earth in a way that isn't available when we're just trying to like patch over um and and get you back to work so yeah it's it's very much true you know when i was prescribing the whole um philosophical and psychological orientation was just around getting symptoms gone. And so that's like a, a really low bar, right? Like the, you know, that's it's essentially only um aspiring to to you know, I don't know, get you back to the way you were before. But you know, this model is obviously interested in getting you to your next chapter, like to your fuller expression. And so that's why I, you know, I like the term transformation. I like the idea of these struggles and symptoms as as a gateway to to sort of the next phase of your life. And it you know, listen, it doesn't always look pretty and it isn't always, you know, a, a blissful wonderful wonderful experience. And I think that's a, another corollary, right, to this is that in this country we make no room for suffering and struggle. You know, there's no room for it at all. It's not honored. It's not something that we are, you know, taught to look at with curiosity. And I think that's a mistake. You know, I think we really lose opportunities um, to, to evolve as, as humans if we are, if we're just trying to stay the course. So it's, I think, really philosophically afforded me um, a comfort level with my patient's distress, like I never get freaked out (laughs) in my practice. And so I can hold a space for them to move through the fire, so to speak, to move through, um, you know, whatever this period of struggle and suffering is, is really all about so we can actually unpack it and then they can move on, you know, to, to where they need to get going to. Super. And you talk about your patients being your partners and you're collaborating and they, they're working hard and you're working hard to help them find the answers, which I think is wonderful and very, very empowering, which is is the way we it should be, I think. They are working hard and there's um you know, there's a transition window in almost every you know, case that I work with, where they begin to know better than me what they need, right? And, you know, that can be in the realm of food or a specific relationship to a certain supplement, or, you know, they'll ask me for, you know, about a a specific kind of exercise or, you know, what do you think about this kind of meditation? And they begin to 
develop an intuitive sense of what they need and they start to tell me you know what should be happening and you know that can take anywhere from four to six months sometimes it takes you know longer uh, but it absolutely is a partnership I mean I now much of my practice is devoted to psychiatric medication tapers right I mean, guess what? I didn't learn that in my training. There wasn't, you know, a single hour of of uh, education on this subject. So I have learned about how to do this from patients and, you know, really from patients globally who are educating each other and, frankly, educating physicians about how to in- engage in a, in a safe uh, and responsible psychiatric medication taper. So I I was humbled long ago and... You know, I think an interesting point is, is that I get asked a lot, you know, well, you're, you know, if your patients are so depressed and hopeless and they can barely get out of bed, you know, how are they doing this program? It seems so overwhelming and ambitious. And, you know, I've, I found it's a very interesting phenomenon and that it, it keeps recurring, which is that not only um, are they able to do it, but actually my sickest patients are the most serious about it. Um, and you wouldn't think that's possible, but I see it every single day. And I sort of, you know, liken it to, to the analogy of, you know, if you were, um, you know, if you had the flu, right, and you felt like you were going to die, and I and I walk in the room and I tell you that you've just won Powerball, you know, you'd probably forget you had a, the flu for a couple of minutes, right, if not longer, and you would have have access to sort of like this this reserve, like a trap door of of a kind of vital energy that you you didn't even know was there, right? And so I sort of think that's often what happens when I meet with patients and I expose them to the possibility that there's a whole nother path, you know, that they that that many, many patients have already traveled, you know, and we know where it can go and we just have to get going. And so there's the there's this I don't know, readiness and, and a dedication and a commitment. And so my, you know, my, my patients who, who, who do the best are often the sickest ones. And I find that inspirational because I think that it means that this is available to just about everyone who, who opens themselves to it. Great. And that's a big point that you make there. You've got to be open to it. And that's what yes. this book is doing. It's it's getting the message out so people are aware. I and mean, I've seen posts on Facebook from people saying, I hadn't even thought about this. I, you know, I had addiction 20 years ago and I didn't even know that this was could be connected to all of these things that you talk about. So I think that awareness and that openness is so important. And I'd really like to come back to the medication taper a little bit later in the interview because I think it's an important aspect to talk about. But before we go there, can we talk a little bit about the effects of the SSRI? So you used to prescribe them and you talk about how even a single dose can have a huge impact and and this fact that the, the withdrawal effects are such a big problem and yet it's not well recognized. So let's talk a little bit about SSRIs and, and why they are so harmful. So this was a big shocker for me because, you know, as someone who believed very passionately, um, you know, that that health was just like one prescription away, um, I was very interested in psychopharmacology. I was very interested in, in, you know, what we understood to be the mechanisms of these different medications and how they were fixing chemical imbalances and how patients really needed them, you know, like a diabetic needs insulin 
Um, I, I was even taught by uh, one of my supervisors in my training, you know, you have to tell patients that this is just like wearing eyeglasses and you can't expect to get through life without wearing eyeglasses if you have myopia, right? So, you know, I was very steeped in this notion that you're born with this chemical imbalance and you need medication for life to fix it. So it was quite shocking <laughs> to me um, to begin to delve into um, the literature and to understand that, in fact, you know, in, in, in decades of research, there actually isn't any scientific evidence to support what we're calling the monoamine hypothesis of depression. And there's been a lot of effort, you know, dissecting the brains of suicide victims, looking at urine metabolites and blood levels and, you know, doing what are called tryptophan depletion studies. And, and they're totally inconsistent results. And probably that's because what we are calling depression isn't just one thing, right? You know, we use the analogy in functional medicine that, you know, you can you can have pain in your toe because you dropped a hammer on it, because you have an infection in your toenail, or because you have like a string tied around it too tightly. And the pain is like the depression, right? It's, it's just a symptom. So, so it wouldn't make any sense to find one mechanism for this symptom, right? So we're back to that same same discussion. But then we sort of have to look at the fact that, okay, so then we're just, we're just talking about chemicals here. We're just talking about a chemical that has an effect. And, you know, a psychiatrist out of the UK named David Healy uses this analogy, which I think is really helpful. And he says, you know, if you're an anxious person, particularly you have a lot of social anxiety, and you drink like two shots of vodka at a, at a party, odds are your your symptoms, quote-unquote, are going to abate, right? You're going to feel a bit better, easier, calmer, looser. And, you know, that doesn't mean that you have an alcohol deficiency or an alcohol imbalance. It just means that a chemical effect of a substance is something that you happen to like in that moment, right? But we can all extrapolate from that and understand that, in fact, you know, if you were to continue with this, quote-unquote, treatment, you know, over time, you can get yourself into some trouble, right? The thing is that, you know, as long as we look at antidepressants as being uh, chemicals having an effect that maybe some people happen to, you know, like, um, we have to begin to look at the long-term exposure. And, you know, my entire life <laughs> changed as a, as a professional when I read a book called Anatomy of an Epidemic by investigative journalist Robert Whitaker uh, because he essentially, you know, really beyond, um, you know, any shadow of a doubt, in my opinion, uh, he essentially argues with, with non-industry funded science that the long-term outcomes of the use of every single psychiatric medication, he spares none, uh, the long-term outcomes are worse than if you were never treated to begin with or if you were treated for a short period of time. So we're looking at the fact that you can end up you know, enjoying maybe, I don't know, it's possible, a short-term effect that you end up, you know, extrapolating into long-term exposure that ends up being a worse outcome for you. And then when you try to taper off a medication after this long-term exposure, either because you're no longer deriving that initial benefit from it or because something has changed about your life circumstance and you want to try a different kind of, you know, health care maybe, uh, then you might learn that these are some of the most habit-forming medications, I would say habit-forming substances, 
on the planet. And I wouldn't believe this if I hadn't seen it with my very own eyes, but this is what actually compelled me to put down my prescription pad for good. Uh, because after I read that book, I began to take patients, or at least offer them the opportunity to taper them off of medication. And even when we did it responsibly, um, I was essentially running an outpatient rehab. I mean, from neurologic symptoms to psychiatric symptoms, physical symptoms, autoimmune diseases flaring, you know, patients developing impulsive behavior and even violence, it was beyond description. And then I began to see that actually a lot of patients around the world are talking about this. You know, they're talking about withdrawal from antidepressants specifically, but of course other medications as well. And their doctors are totally ill-equipped to help them because we don't learn about how to do this in our training. And we actually, in fact, dismiss patients when they talk about um, these being addictive medications. And of course, now finally, um, you know, FAVA is a group, you know, et al. is a group of researchers who have finally begun to publish the reality of this withdrawal syndrome and how disabling it can be. So since I have foregrounded lifestyle interventions and actually, you know, begun with nutrition, um, such that I don't even begin a medication taper until about two months into lifestyle change. Everything is different now in my practice. You know, I, I, I feel that, you know, once you can optimize your physiology, you really put yourself in a much, much better position to safely and strategically taper. But, wow, isn't that something you would want to know before taking your first prescription? I certainly never told any patients that it, it could be like a horror show and you might never be able to come off of a psychiatric medication, you know, if you're taking it for longer than a year or so. I never informed patients of that. So, you know, a lot of what I discuss and describe, you know, in this book is in service of presenting people with a full picture of what the science has to say before they make a decision. You know, because I think we really we really wish that there was a magic pill, right? We really wish there was a safe, effective, quick fix. And unfortunately, what is available is really anything but that. Yep, we we want that quick fix. I've got a few follow-on questions because this is a lot of good information here. So the fact that uh, you see all these problems when people are coming off the meds, is there a time frame or was it really dependent on each person? It's very, very dependent on each person, and right, that's that ends up being the take-home, right, that we are talking about, you know, what I like to call N-of-one medicine. We're talking about the fact that our levels of biochemical individuality have never been more relevant than, we were, than when we're exploring how we interact with chemicals in our environment, in our pharmaceuticals. We really need to understand that every single person is an individual. So when I taper patients off of um, meds, I normally do what's called a test dose decrease, which often is around like 20 to 25% of the dose. We come down by that. And again, this is after we've done, you know, the initial month at least of you know, fairly strict dietary compliance, um, working with uh, relaxation response, doing, you know, 20 minutes or, or more of, of movement, you know, working on sleep, all of this has to happen first. And then we begin, and so we start with a test dose. If within about two to four weeks that test dose is completely well tolerated, like meaning you don't even notice a difference, um, 
then we probably can work in bigger increments. And that's actually a godsend, right, because these tapers, when we're working in 10% and less doses, uh, can take literally years. <laughs> so you sort of want to you know, begin to learn about what your body is capable of bouncing back from. So we so we begin with 25%, and if that's not a pretty picture, then we'll 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 just scale it back to about 10% of the initial dose and work with that 10% increment. Um, you know, at about every two to four weeks, sometimes unfortunately slower. So the the increment and then the speed are two variables that we have to learn for each patient and. I work with, I don't know what I would do uh, without a compounding pharmacy because while many of these medications are available in liquid form um, and some of them, like Effexor, for example, have beads inside um, a capsule, you know, to, to be able to tailor and personalize the dosage to each individual patient is really, um, it's wonderful that, uh, that I have that option through, you know, through compounding pharmacy. I work with one in Massachusetts um, named Johnson Compounding, and they've just been a wonderful support over the years um, to, to my patients. Wonderful. So very slow and then obviously very individualized. Now, I'm very familiar with the effects of benzodiazepines and the, the slow taper process that's needed for someone on the anti-anxiety benzodiazepine medication. Yes. Would you say that the SSRIs can have comparable effects in some people or is it not as bad as the benzodiazepines? That's a great question. So what we've what we've observed in uh, in psychiatry is that there's really been a transition from using benzodiazepines as sort of like a spot treatment um, to transitioning into using antidepressants long term. And when I was in my training, you know, the typical gold standard protocol would be to start somebody on both benzodiazepine. Uh, and antidepressant, and then, uh, it, you know, taper them off to benzodiazepine and leave on the antidepressant, with the thinking being that benzodiazepines are acknowledged for their uh, habit-forming properties and antidepressants mm -hmm. are totally safe, right? What we are learning is, in fact, and again, that group um, that FAVA runs, you know, what the papers that they're putting out are essentially equating um, the antidepressant withdrawal phenomenon to, uh, to the benzodiazepine. I, in my clinical experience, I would actually argue that SSRIs are worse. Wow. Um, I am, and with long-term exposure, I should mm -hmm. I should qualify. But you know, a lot of people at this point, given that it's been decades since Prozac, you know, um, have been on these medications for more than 10 years. And so we're really talking about a level of habituation that can be challenging to, to undo. Um, it's not that I haven't, you know, I've struggled a lot with clonopin, for example, um, and it's not that I haven't encountered challenges uh, with benzodiazepines, but, you know, I have a patient in my practice I'm taking off of Lexapro uh, a thousandth of a milligram a month. Yeah. I mean, I've never heard of something like that. Heroin, crack cocaine, OxyContin. I mean, show me something that would ever require that. It's it's unbelievable. Um, so, you know, I think it's at least comparable, I would say, and that's what, you know, the literature is beginning to demonstrate is that they're actually comparable phenomena. But we, we've really never, ever um, talked about antidepressants in this way, so it really is a, a game-changing perspective. And the fact that you say people are not 
told that this could be a possibility and the fact that you're talking about this and writing about it I think is so important because people need to know they need to, they yes. would choose not to do this if they did know and I see there's this bill going through about benzodiazepine and, and people yes. needing to consent to the fact that it's going to possibly cause them issues and it sounds like we need to do the same with these antidepressants absolutely 100% now, I've heard that certain SSRIs are worse than others. I've heard that Paxil can be really bad. Have you seen a difference between different medications? So we're basically we look at half-life um, of these medications and we sort of extrapolate from there, assuming that Prozac would be the easiest uh, and then medications like Paxil and effects are more challenging. In my experience, um, there are two waves of uh, discontinuation, as, as um, you know, the, the field likes to call it, uh, discontinuation issues. The first is acute, right? So it's like within about 72 hours of a dose change where you can get brain zaps and headache and gastrointestinal distress, um, feel agitated. You know, pa the Paxils of the world are much more likely to cause those uh, more immediate withdrawal symptoms. But what I have found is, unfortunately, there's, there's really, there's, there's no free lunch, right? So there there's, isn't a medication that actually is effortless to come off of for everyone. Um, so that even when you are on, you know, Prozac, for example, for a long period of time, even though it has this long half-life, it should be easy to come off of. In my experience, it can often be very challenging as well. But often it manifests, um, these other medications manifest that second wave. So what I have found is almost uncanny that after about two months, it's almost always six to eight weeks after the final dose or after a major dose change, um, it's like the other shoe can drop, right? So you have that, those immediate withdrawal symptoms and then about two months later, you can begin to have what has historically been categorized as a relapse right? So this is when your doctor will tell you, you see, you should have never even tried to go off your medication. You need it for life. Now you know, right? That's what we're taught to say. But in fact, it's actually a protracted withdrawal phenomenon. And again, this has now been documented that this can occur for, unfortunately, and I don't want to scare anyone, but can occur for, you know, months and months and even years after the final dose. So that being said, you know, there isn't a medication that, that spares you from that, um, you know, sort of arm of this, of this problem. And even, you know, I went for years tapering patients off of Wellbutrin and thinking, well, this is the easy one. I can even come down by 50% of the dose and it's not a problem. And, you know, and, and right now in my practice I have a patient who, who has been completely destabilized coming down by, you know, 25 milligrams of, of Wellbutrin. So, you know, it's, again, it's a very individualized process, and I don't think that there are um, any obvious choices in terms of medications that are uh, easier to, to come off of after long-term exposure. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. It's uh, it's scary, but the good thing is that there are solutions, so people don't yes. have to get on these medications and and do the slow taper and and make all the changes that you've talked about. And I'm glad that you mentioned, you know, don't rush into this. Make all the food changes. We're going to talk about some of the things that you that you recommend in a second. But get get yourself in a better place to start making these changes. Because if you're listening to this and you're thinking, oh my gosh, this is terrible, don't go and rush out and just stop 
certainly don't want to stop cold turkey. You want to be working with someone and, and, and then obviously read the book and, and, and get resources so you can be in a, a good place when you're starting to make these changes. Um, Absolutely. That's yeah. all incredibly important. I would have, yes, <laughs> please, please, please don't don't ever consider just stopping your medication. Yeah. I just wanted to clarify, you said there's this organization that is documenting the withdrawal symptoms. What is the name of that? Father? Oh, Fava. He's a researcher. He's an Italian um, researcher. Okay. okay. Um, F-A, F like Frank, A-V-A. And he's okay. put out a number of, I think, uh, with his group, very important papers um, beginning to, to discuss this. Uh, and he's referenced in the book, and I have a blog on my website, too, just with links to the articles um, that he's put out. Yeah, he's basically beginning to tell the true story of these medications and, and how we've sort of misunderstood them as being, you know, medications that actually correct underlying imbalances when, in, in fact, they actually create abnormal states in the body that then the body has to readapt from after we remove exposure. So it's pretty pretty powerful research. Okay, great. And I remember reading that. I read all that, and I just didn't, didn't make the connection with Fiverr. I thought it was an organization. I didn't realize it was this, this author. So I'll make sure yeah. to make that clear when I share this because I want to point back to some sections in the book because um, it's great. I'm going to read it about 10 more times. I think I got, I got so much out of it. And every time I look at it, something else pops out, and I think, oh, I need to take it a deeper dive into that. So it's really great. It's all out. That's the amazing part. It's like, you know, all the science is, is out there. That's the beauty of PubMed.gov. It's like you just spend a couple hours on there, and, and it's and it's all there. But, like, who's who's uh, who's pointing us in that direction? You know, we, we really have relied on um, – you know, particular trusted sources. And that's part of what's difficult about the information in this book is it, it really, I don't know, reframes our agency in in, in that it, it, it tells us, you know, that, that we are in charge. Uh, but it also, you know, the embedded message is that we can't rely on the people and organizations and authorities that we thought we could rely on anymore. You know, this is a new era where we need to self-educate and self-initiate into our own uh, health journeys, and, and there's a lot of responsibility that comes with that. Absolutely. So I've got one final question on the medication aspect, and you've got a small section in the book where you talk about using uh, amino acids when mm -hmm. you are helping people taper, and as you know, and my community knows, um, very into using the amino acids. I find them very helpful for helping yes. people with the mood issues. Can you talk a little bit about how you use the aminos and, and how beneficial you find them when someone is doing this taper? Yes, absolutely. So I am uh, quite certain that I, I, there are many, 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 many roads um, to you know, physiologic and psychospiritual resiliency um, and so I in no way uh, intend to position myself as having the answer, you know, by any means. So I am very much trying to create a space for all of those who are passionate about natural healing, including yourself and our colleagues, um, because I think that just about just about everything <laughs> in the natural health arena um, offers you, you know, the potential for very high high yield, very low risk um healthcare. And and so I certainly, you know, don't consider myself um an expert in, in amino acids and um don't have a fraction of the knowledge that you have about this arena. 
that being said, I do use I do use them for tapers specifically and um, lead often. If I use supplements, I wait after a month of dietary change before introducing any supplements, mostly because I want to sort of I don't know send send patients the message of what a single um, intervention in terms of lifestyle, like what a dietary intervention can do in terms of moving the needle of their health. And so I, I often don't want to cloud the picture with other interventions like even, you know, supplements or even detox. So after that period, if it is necessary, you know, I'll often lead with um, some of the supplements I talk about, um, whether it's, you know, probiotic or glandulars. I use a lot based on my work with um my um, the only mentor I've ever had, Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez. Um, you know, I, I learned a lot about using glandulars, using specific minerals, using fatty acids, that sort of thing. Um, but the um, when we're working with um, with SSRIs, I'll often use. I, I tend to use tryptophan more often than 5-HTP, and I do use tryptophan even in like the 3 to 6 gram range Mm -hmm. um, before dinner and before bed. And I would say that it's, you know, it's helpful often, uh, not in every case, with a lot of the insomnia specifically that can arise uh, in the setting. It's about the worst thing that can happen in the setting of a taper is the kind of insomnia that's induced by um, psychiatric medication taper. So, you know, I have uh, several tricks up my sleeve, and and that's certainly one of them. I, you know, through my own self-education, and and again, you know, you you, uh, may have um, a more sophisticated perspective on this, that when you use 5-HTP or or tryptophan for, you know, a longish period of time, meaning like over a couple of weeks, that you want to sort of balance it out um, with tyrosine or, or uh, DL-phenylalanine, and so if we, if we are using it for a period of time, I might incorporate that. I have found um, that when I work with Wellbutrin tapers, um, it's extremely helpful um, to use um, tyrosine and actually an herb, Makina purians, around um, support for dopamine uh, trafficking. So, you know, I do think that while these medications do many, many, many things, uh, and we want to think that they only do one thing, like they enter with a precise blade and only act on one chemical. Of course, they don't. Um, you know, for whatever reason, often these sort of correlates, these um, amino acid correlates, can be can be very helpful. So, um, and then all of my patients, actually, I should mention, um, I have on who are tapering, I have on a blend of amino acids. Um, I don't know if I'm if I'm supposed to talk about brands or not. <laughs> I never know when that's appropriate. Oh, no, please do, but, please do. We okay. want to hear what what great practitioners are using and getting results with. So feel free to. Yeah. Okay. So so my colleague Jim Greenblatt um, uh, has collaborated with Pure Encapsulations, and he has a line of amino acids that I just happen to use a lot in my practice, and he has a tryptophan containing amino acid. It's not him. I mean, it's them, I guess. But blend, um, and then he has a you know serotonin and dopamine sort of focused blends, which for whatever reason I, I happen to I happen to like a lot. Um, and you know, obviously, I, I he we did the textbook together, and obviously, I have a lot, high regard for him um, and his expertise in this arena. So so that's often what I'll end up using in this setting, and they're very gentle. Um, but I you know I tend to when I use supplements. I often have like it's like my pharmaceutical training comes out, you know, because I'll often use 
you know, liberal doses, you know, for example, if I use N-acetylcysteine, which I happen to, to use often as a supplement, you know, I'll I'll get into the, you know, three-plus gram range, and I'm sure that, you know, there are many patients who probably don't require um, such aggressive doses, but I really don't have any um, specific fears, you know, relative to, to the side effect considerations of pharmaceuticals. I mean, we're talking about natural um, compounds, you know, I really, I, I feel quite comfortable. And it's not to say that you can't have side effects. I actually personally am very sensitive to supplement side effects. Um, and have become more so over my sort of like health journey over the past seven years. Um, so it's not that they can't, you can't have side effects, but for the most part, they're, you know, incredibly minor and mild. And you know, and when you, when you're in the practice of listening to your body, then, then you, you're never going to get yourself into a position, um, where you're, where you're really up a creek, you know, when it comes to supplements. So I, I feel pretty comfortable experimenting. Great, yeah, and and you're right. You can get side effects from supplements as well, so you've got to be careful. And listening to your body, I think, is so important. And once you get on this journey and you start reading books like this and you start getting empowered, then you you do listen to your body and you are aware. Exactly. Um, I, I'm I'm really pleased to hear that you mentioned the pure encapsulations uh, blend because there are a number of free-form amino acid blends that do not contain tryptophan, and I think that's, that's concerning. Right. We don't want that because then you can actually become depleted. So that's I do right. like that particular product. And Dr. Greenblatt, I think, is wonderful. He's been on one of the previous summits, and I know he was the co-editor with you on your textbook, and yes. which is fantastic. So it's wonderful to... To hear all you know, all you wonderful psychiatrists um, working together and and collaborating and and bringing great things for all of us to to benefit from. So, it's 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 great. I'll share that book in the information that I that I share with this interview as well for for practitioners who want to take a deeper dive into some of these. Perfect. So this is great to hear. So wow, we've got we've covered so much and we didn't get to the the nuts and bolts of, of some of the approaches that you use with regards to blood sugar control and leaky gut and inflammation. But before we go into that, I just wanted to highlight something because we've been talking a lot about medications here and the mm. concerns and the side effects and maybe having warnings about this. And this is something that I, I want to mention because you've had a mainstream media blackout on your book. Mm. And it's very likely related to the, the medication aspect. And despite that, the grassroots support has been absolutely phenomenal. So can we just talk about that a little bit, just because I think it's really important to highlight the fact that despite the fact that we've got opposition to this, that people want this information and that, that they're looking for it. And I think that's really, really important. And I think it's a, it's a very powerful thing that you're doing here. Yes, it's it's a on a on a personal level it it reflects what I already know to be the case which is that as you said the current model is not working and and that people are very much looking for something different you know I I wouldn't have had a, a year and a half wait list at one point in in recent history if 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 these medications were doing what what we thought they were and working well and making patients happy and functional and vital right so on a personal level um I always had confidence that there was going to be receptivity for this. Um, but what's been even more beautiful is to, is to awaken to how powerful um, the community around this consciousness is and how 
important it's going to be if we're going to really change the game and usher in more options at least, at the very least, for our health care. You know, we have to band together and we have to begin to um, create like this, uh, I don't know, sort of like a regenerative bubble around um, the, the patients who are struggling and who, are, who need this information, who are looking for it. You know, I am not even sure how it happened that I uh, landed a, a contract, publishing contract with a very mainstream publisher, HarperCollins. Um, given the material in this in this book, uh, I was shocked, honestly. You know, because obviously I discussed psychiatric medications, but I, I'm also, you know, once I opened that Pandora's box, I, you know, I fell into it and also, you know, bumped into, you know, statins and birth control and Tylenol and EdSense and vaccines, and I, I just left no stone unturned um, as I was discovering how, you know, really misguided many of these pharmaceutical interventions are and how much we connect and attach to the promise of them uh, while neglecting and dismissing the very real and unpredictable risks, right? So it, it's no surprise that pharmaceutically sponsored mainstream television networks would have no interest in creating space for my message, right? It just doesn't make any sense, and I knew that, Um but, you know, the folks at Harper were really shocked. They've never had this happen, uh, particularly with, you know, uh, such a, a, I guess, a sizable deal. You know, they expected me to just, like, waltz on to Dr. Oz and the Today Show and Fox and 2020 and CNN and all of the rest. And not only did we get uh, – every, and everyone got, had the galley, so, you know, they they checked out the book, and it was probably because of that that we began to get no, 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 and then we even got, you know, one almost quasi-threatening response from a major network saying that if they were to have me on, that it would actually be negative press. Um, so, you know, this inspired me to, to draw on what I always intuitively knew to be the case, which is, you know, this is this book is all about the new story, right? This book is all about how we actually can reclaim what we've we've given away, and it can be so much more beautiful. And that's in fact in parallel what's happened, right? So so in many ways, you know, those of of you who have come around in support of this message, the statement is we're reclaiming information dispersal. You know, we are reclaiming our right <laughs> to know more. And isn't this amazing? You know, the, the energy, I mean, I literally had like tears of, of joy, you know, the other day just feeling how incredible it is, how many of us are out there, you know, ready ready for this. And, and that's so much more beautiful than anything that could have come of me, you know, chatting with, with Dr. Oz on a Tuesday morning. So... Everything is, is as it should be, right? Everything sort of happens uh, just the way it should. So in the end, this is all part of the same, you know, parallel process um, for, for creating a very different atmosphere around um, truth and, and information. And it's beautiful. I love it. It's so beautiful. And I know so many people in my community have supported this, so I just want to give a shout-out yes. to, to you if you're one of the people who did support it. I know a lot of you have, and and it's it's just wonderful to see. And despite that, you've seen incredible numbers on Amazon, and I believe, I think, that I heard that um, you've made the New York Times bestseller list, which is pretty ironic, considering they didn't want to feature you. <laughs> it is, is right? Correct? It is, it is, yeah. So it's 
we found out um, yesterday, you know, you know, it was all because of your efforts and, and our colleagues and, you know, patients talking to each other and to their family and friends and this communication and creating this tribe. You know, the book sold out on Amazon within oh. um, 24 hours. It launched to, like, top 20 books, you know, on the planet. And then yesterday we found out that, um, you know, we, that we did make the bestseller list, which is crazy. I can't even believe it. And, and also USA Today. So, so this is all, you know, it's a, it's a really, I'm not sure it's, it's been done very often, you know, that without any mainstream pharma-funded support, you know, that, that we can spread information organically. It's just so cool. I mean, it means so much for all of these very, you know, if I can get this message out this way, then anyone with, with, a, with a powerful truth under their belt has the opportunity to, to really uh, make an impact. It's very cool. It is. I love it. I'm just grinning from ear to ear here. So I'm so happy for you. It's so great. And I wanted to say that you've got this wonderful grassroots campaign. So if if you don't have the book yet and you're listening to this and you want to be part of this tribe, and I'd, correct me if I'm wrong here, Kelly, but you can uh, take a picture of yourself with the book and mm-hmm. post it on social media and use the hashtag a mind of your own. And then you'll be part of the community and you've got this connected to this wonderful website that shows all the pictures and all the posts that everyone does. Is that correct? It's it's a lot of fun. And you can do a tag (laughs) search and you can see there's hundreds of them. It's beautiful. And it's babies and dogs and moms and, (laughs) you know, men. And it's just, it's a very cool thing. You know, and again, just, just standing up for, for for this fuller picture of the truth and and I have no interest in telling anyone what to do with their health. I firmly believe that we each have our own journey. We have it for a reason and all that I all that I am asking is that, you know, this information get into the hands that that need it so that you can avoid maybe going down a path that you wouldn't have gone down if you had the full story. Exactly. Yes. And and empowerment it goes back to what we said at the beginning. You empowered, yes. you can know that there's options and you can take charge and and feel good and feel amazing and not just go through life not feeling your your absolute best and that's what it's all about we want we want you to feel your absolute best and and there's these tools that you can use that can make you feel good things so let's just end here with just a few things that can give people some hope in terms of blood sugar control and inflammation and and just a, maybe a few tips from your approach on how people can actually start to heal. Totally. Yeah, I mean, this is this is really where where the good stuff is obviously because I wouldn't be doing this if I just had to suffer through the misery of getting people off of antidepressant medications and then, you know, sort of hope for the best. I mean, the the beauty is that in 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 revisiting these fundamental tenets of of lifestyle medicine you know, again, you know, diet, movement, meditation, detoxification, and revisiting these, you have an opportunity in a very short period of time, uh, if you take it seriously, you have an opportunity to, you know, get a, get a second chance, maybe a third, fourth chance. You have that opportunity every single day. You can start over. So my orientation is really, you know, I'm not not sort of like a half – half-assed kind of girl, so I, I, I really am I'm focused on giving yourself this month. It's one month of your entire life 
and anyone can do it. Give yourself this month and take it really seriously, like a medical prescription. Um, that's how I, you know, I treat it in my practice. You know, you don't even get a second appointment if you haven't done this. Um, I think it's really important, and I think everybody deserves this, you know, this sort of um, self biohacking experimentation, right? But it's really not that challenging. The the dietary template that I um, that I recommend, again, a lot of this depends on your getting in touch with your personal preferences and intuition about eating, and I'll give an example of that, but the dietary template really isn't that challenging, to be honest. It's, it's a classical whole foods ancestral template, and uh, it is a red meat inclusive diet. Um, I am, you know, formerly ethical vegetarian, and, you know, so, so it's, it was as challenging for me to, to come, and this is also the diet that I use, you know, in putting my own Hashimoto's into remission, but it was as challenging for me to sort of accept that this could be a therapeutic diet as it is probably for many people. So if you have, you know, ethical, um, you know, uh, d- difficulties with, with animal products, that is, you know, certainly its own yeah, I'm, I'm not interested in converting anybody on that front, obviously. But if you're just interested in, in what might be a therapeutic and helpful model around, you know, the struggle with depression, anxiety, autoimmunity, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, there's a huge category, I think, of, of illnesses that can be aided, you know, through, the, through this model. So, it, so it's essentially... Um, uh, focus on the sourcing, so it's pastured animal products, organic produce, Obviously, right. So it's red meat, poultry, eggs. Of course, with the yolks, it's um, yes. <laughs> fish. Um, <laughs> primarily, you know, um, smaller fish, sardines, anchovies, maybe some um, sam, wild salmon, and then it's um, any and all vegetables, including starchy vegetables like sweet potato, plantains, yucca, taro, that sort of thing. Um, there's not much of a focus on fruit, but the fruit that is. Um, uh, is better, and I, and I go into more of this because it's largely based on the nutrition template I learned from my mentor, Nick Gonzalez, uh, but the fruit that is included is actually tropical fruits, so it's a little bit counterintuitive because people worry about, you know, they're being so sugary and everything else. But actually, the, the greatest antidote um, to blood sugar instability, which is a major, major issue in psychiatry. You know, I can't tell you how many patients who thought they had ADHD, who thought they had panic attacks, you know, within a month of a high natural fat diet, I'm sure you can attest, um, you know, have resolution of these these quote-unquote psychiatric symptoms, right? Um, so the high natural fat component comes, comes with, you know, sort of the animal foods, um, the egg yolks, the use of coconut oil and clarified butter, you know, called ghee, avocado, nuts and seeds, olive oil, these sorts of um, natural fats. And so I would say that if there is, you know, a, a single change to make, it would probably be to breakfast. Um, so, I, you know, I have a, a recipe. I was actually going to do a video. I've never done like a like a recipe video, but I sort of felt inspired to do it this weekend. <laughs> I was going to do, because um, uh, I really, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a chef. I don't have any special skills in the kitchen. So all of the recipes that, you know, I recommend are like pretty much idiot proof. If I can do them, anyone can. 
so so there's a you know there's a smoothie recipe I have on my website and in the book it's very simple but basically all that it's for is to to it's like a vehicle a chocolate tasting vehicle for all of these natural fats right because you're probably not going to eat four egg yolks you know two tablespoons of ghee a tablespoon of coconut oil you know a tablespoon or two of nut butter in one serving if it's not in a smoothie form but you might find that compared to you know, cereal, even a gluten-free cereal, compared to certainly like a bagel, waffles, you know, dessert for breakfast kind of thing that we do in America, that you actually have a, a level of um, comfort in your own body and cognitive, you know, mental stability that you didn't have when you ate that dessert for breakfast, you know, if you just load up on natural fats first thing. So I would say if you're going to change anything, maybe just start with with breakfast because then you can start to watch, like, how much of what you think is just, like, who you are and is maybe your personality or is maybe just a chronic thing you think you're you're struggling with, like brain fog, for example, how much of that is actually a direct consequence of your, of your daily, you know, uh, nutrition. So, you know, and, and this is the beauty of being able to, to start any single day um, that you wake up, you know, that you 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 make, you know, you you communicate with your genes every time you you take a bite of food, and you're either you know like whispering a love, <laughs> you know, poem to them, or you're you're screaming at them. Oh, so uh, so so that's um that's where I would say to start. Perfect. What a perfect ending to a fabulous interview. This was great, and I'm a big fan of the the whole approach, the ancestral diet, the red meat, the healthy fats. Obviously, it's got to be grass-fed quality. Yes. We don't want the commercial meat. So, and yes. all these healthy fats, just so so beneficial in that breakfast in the morning, just so important. So this is wonderful, wonderful, wonderful interview. I just can't you know recommend your book more highly. I just think you're amazing, and I'm so appreciative that you are sharing this message with us today and with your book and with all the wonderful work that you do, Kelly. It's just wonderful. Uh, well, right back at you. Your your endorsement and your support could not mean more to me, and I have so much gratitude. You know, for I mean, it really takes um, an authentic healer and you know, sort of love <laughs> lover of the truth to be able to so um, generously and graciously support you know another's message. So I, I'm I'm just uh, you know. I'm here. I'm here in the space with you and with your community, and I'm so um, so grateful for, for everything that's unfolding. So thanks, Trudy. You are so welcome, and it's uh, so well-deserved, and, and it's, it's just a great resource. I'm always looking for great resources to share with my community. So get the book. It's just absolutely amazing. Um, I'm going to share a link so you can go and get the first chapter of the book if you're on the fence, and after reading that first chapter, I'll know you'll want to get the book and then join the grassroots efforts. I'll share how you can do that again. Hashtag a mind of your own. And um, again, thanks very much for joining us, Kelly. And thanks, everyone, for joining us on this great interview. This is Trudy Scott signing off. And just a quick update. I forgot to mention that both Kelly Brogan and myself will be presenting at the MIND conference in Sydney in May. That's mindd.org. And we'll also be presenting at IMMH, Integrative Medicine for Mental Health Conference, in September in Washington, D.C. So come along to those events, and you can hear Kelly Brogan speak live, and you can hear me speak live as well. We look forward to seeing you there, and we look forward to seeing you online. Again, Trudy Scott signing off.